Welcome to Word from the Herd, produced and brought to you by the Kimmel Foundation for Recovering Leadership. Welcome to Word from the Herd. I'm your host, Thomas Hill, and today I'm very excited to have in our studio Sandy Coates. Now, Sandy's current uh, gig is he's the site director and senior counsel for Boeing here in Oklahoma. And, and I may let him tell you a little bit about what that actually means because it's kind of a unique position. But prior to that, he's had a long and, and uh, wonderful career as an attorney, including being nominated by President Barack Obama uh, to be the U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Oklahoma for more than six years, um, has served uh, the, the nation and our state many, many times over. Um, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to hear some great stories. So, Sandy, welcome to the Word from the Herd today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit about this uh, this unique position you have with Boeing here in Oklahoma. Well, yeah, uh, Boeing, Oklahoma, is a, it's a really exciting time for us, give, even with the pandemic. Uh, we uh, It's Boeing defense. Uh, most of what we do here has to do with um, legacy aircraft for the Air Force and for our allies around the world. Um, so I'm the only attorney here for Boeing in our more than 3,000 employees, uh, mostly engineers, working on these uh, platforms. Um, so that takes up uh, most of my time, or a good bit of my time. And then I'm also the site director, which um, you know I, I help to run the site and make sure that the um, you know the uh, papers there, the the roads are right. But you know more, more importantly, that uh, we have a, a safe and uh, uh, adequate and right place for our folks to to do their work. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, you, when we were talking uh, earlier, you were you were talking about you're kind of not the engineering part of, of Boeing, and and uh, I don't understand that part because I'm the engineer. That's that's the role I always play where I am, and so I'm glad there are people like you that are taking care of the stuff that, that engineers don't because we forget some stuff. Sometimes yeah, when yeah, I'm... that's been interesting uh, for me. It's my first time both in a big company and then uh, you know working with uh, a lot of engineers and. Uh, yeah, we, we speak the same language, but we don't always necessarily communicate too exactly. well. Exactly, exactly. All right, so right out of the shoot, I want to ask you a question um, that I ask all of my guests. Uh, it's not necessarily uh, related to the, the stuff we'll continue to talk about, but but Sandy, who was your hero when you were growing up? And uh, and if it's changed, maybe who is your hero now? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. And, uh, you know, like many people, um, I, I think about my family and I think about, of course, you know, my mom and dad, uh, but I really center, center on my brother. Uh, my brother Mike is uh, um, almost seven years older than me, and he was born profoundly deaf, never heard a sound, and uh, he uh, uh, has had great success in the world, but we were uh, really, really close and, and remain that way uh, to this day. And so probably other than my parents, he's had maybe even more than my parents had the greatest um, impact on my life. And uh, He's a banker. He works for IBC Bank. He's got two degrees. Um, still, never heard a sound in his life, and he's completely oral. Doesn't um, communicate through sign language, so he reads lips and, and speaks. But this is back in the '70s and '80s, right? So, being seven years older than me, you know, I was his eyes and uh, I was his ears at least, um, and uh, uh, I also would, you know, do the things like um, third and fourth grade, I'm calling girls and asking them out on dates because, you know, he couldn't communicate with them. So, and who's going to turn down the cute little, you know, third grade brother who's calling to, uh, ask, uh, uh, a girl out on a date. So, but we've, we've remained very, very close. I'm so proud of him. And, and, uh, so, you know, I've got, I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit, sort of the leadership that history in my family. Uh, but, um, you know, he's someone that, uh, 
I've always looked up to and, and is a, a true hero to me. That is amazing. That is amazing. Um, I have a brother that's three and a half years younger than I am, and I would never have had him call a girl on my behalf. That would not. I would not yeah. have trusted that. I can tell you, when it came around to my turn, I was I was pretty comfortable on the phone, you know, uh, chatting, and then I've been calling girls for for many years. So, that's that is hilarious. Yeah. That is really funny. All right, so Sandy, you've you've spent your career, your professional career, working basically to help keep keep people safe. I mean. You've been involved in organizations and agencies that basically go after the bad guys to protect the rest of us, and that's that's fantastic. Also, um, at your current position at Boeing, I understand Boeing has been in and continues to be involved in the effort to distribute the vaccine, um, which is something that is obviously very important to all of us. So tell us a story or a couple of stories, if you have a couple that you want to tell, about, you know, about a time when you really felt like what you were doing um, – made a tactical difference in someone's lives in terms of, of keeping them safe or putting them in a safer position. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I've had those great opportunities in my career and, um, I'm not, I can't say that I necessarily had that career path in mind when I went to law school. Um, I, I worked for a year at the Oklahoma Gazette, uh, after I graduated from undergraduate school and then, um, and then went to law school and that was when the bombing happened. Um, so I was working there, 36th in Chartel, um, the day, the morning that, that the bomb went off. And, you know, to say that was a, a seminal moment or a trans, uh, transformative moment in our lives, everyone that was here, I think, would agree with that. Absolutely. Um, I did, I had already planned to go to law school, but it really focused in for me the the need for, you know, public service and to make, you know, Oklahoma City and Oklahoma a better place um, and, and all that came with that. So that, that I did that for a little bit, went to law school, practiced law, for about four and a half years, and then um, I had a wonderful oppor- experience at Feller Snyder Law Firm. They were great to me, but uh, I-, I wanted a little bit more. I wanted some trial work. I wanted uh, a little more, a, a different uh, experience, and I was very fortunate to become an assistant United States attorney uh, at that time, so I became a federal prosecutor uh, in 2004 and uh, an assistant uh, uh, at the U.S. Attorney's Office. couple of stories. So the, the first day, Robert McCampbell was the United States Attorney at the time, appointed by, um, by President uh, uh, Bush, and uh, he got me involved in, a, in the ground floor of an investigation, um, and it was a, a really a, a multi-state investigation into um, uh, child prostitution, and uh, it was, you know, tough in that I had small children at home and, and you know, thinking about what, um, what was going on. It took some convincing around here that that was happening in Oklahoma City, and it, and it was. Um, this is a little bit before it, it had, had it gone online, and, and it was mostly at truck stops in, in, uh, in central Oklahoma and other places. But we, through that, we were able to identify over 75 um, uh, girls, mostly, um, between ages 12 and, and 17 that had been uh, exploited um, all over the country. And uh, you know, to get justice for them, we had we had three trials in that investigation. Uh, Sixteen, I think, federal defendants. Some went to the state, uh, and uh, you know they were very challenging uh, in many many ways, but very rewarding when we were able to get justice for for those um, girls and their families. And uh, many of them, uh, I, I I've been able to to track, were able to get their lives back together and make make productive. Um, lives and and uh, the the lead FBI agent who's now retired uh, and I remain close close friends and and 
you know, exchange Christmas cards, and, and he keeps up with the, the victims even more than I do, and I love to hear about them. And another uh, example, a little bit later on, I got into um, prosecuting some, some drug trafficking organizations and um, worked with the Oklahoma City Police Department and the, the DEA and the ATF, and um, this is in the late 2000s. Um, we identified a, a gang that had sort of come into a, a, a neighborhood in, in, in southwest uh, Oklahoma City, kind of near um, U.S. Grant High School. And it was a, a really blue-collar neighborhood, a, a street that, you know, folks had lived on for many years. It was the kind of place where they checked on the, the elderly neighbors, and they had cookouts on Sunday afternoon, and the kids played, played together as a basketball goal set up. And uh, within about eight months, um, a gang had come and rented a house, and, it, and that house had become really a, a, a candy store, if you will, of, of drug, drug activity. Um, there were two incidences in which there were um, shootouts up and down the street um, among rival gangs. One of them, um, they estimated over 100 rounds were shot um, in one evening. And it went from a place like I described to where, to where people were scared to come out of their homes. And uh, we were able to work with, with those agencies, uh, state and local and, and federal agencies, and um, we indicted the entire gang, um, put together a case, had three different trials. Some, a couple of them lasted over two weeks, but um, we were able to get those, that neighborhood back, um, that street back for those citizens, and, and they could go again and enjoy um, their lives and their neighbors. And so there's, there was a lot of great satisfaction in, in uh, you know, really, I think, making a difference uh, uh, in those people's lives. Man, that's amazing. Sandy, I picked up on a couple of things there that I, that I think are really important. You know, in the, in the first story, you, you kind of just as an aside mentioned that um, you kind of said, yeah, it was going on in Oklahoma. And, you know, it, it occurs to me that a lot of times as leaders, we are unaware of the dangers that our people, the people that we lead and serve may be facing. And, and therefore, it could even be something that we are inadvertently doing. It could be part of the culture that we've created, not knowing that, we, that we've put them at harm. And there's so many things going on sometimes that we are just not opening our eyes and looking at. And so the first thing I, I would I'd pick up out of that story is, you know, a, a leader needs to be, have their eyes open, needs to be looking for the things that would make their people unsafe, whether that's, you know, physically safe or mentally or emotionally safe. And then... You didn't say it, but I have to imagine that there is a certain amount of danger involved in going after a gang, um, you know, that, that you kind of put yourself in the firing line when you start indicting people who have nothing to lose and who are willing to have a shootout on the street. Um, and so it, there's, some, there's some courage there. There's a necessary, necessary for us as leaders to be courageous um, when, when we're taking care of our people. So, yeah, two thoughts to that. Um, one, uh, I, I agree with you, and... and I think one of the hallmarks of, of a good leader is the ability to listen. And uh, I heard someone say, I've never heard, I've never learned anything from hearing myself talk. And, uh, you know, I, I really try to live that way. Um, you know, I, I, there's time to talk, sure, but there's also a time to listen and, and, um, and not passively listen, uh, you know, sort of actively listen and understand really what people are are saying, um, and I think that's uh, that's hard sometimes, especially when you have a lot going on. You're trying to lead a, a large group of people, um, but um, I think it's 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 critical. Uh, you know, as far as the danger side, I, there's a little bit of that. Um, the The truth is, interestingly, that those charged with criminal activity generally don't hold it against the prosecutor. 
Um, there's a little bit of that. You, you, you know the movie Cape Fear, and everyone thinks about, you know, Counselor or the guy coming out, you know, <laughs> right. from underneath the right, car. Exactly. Um, but that, that's Hollywood. Um, there's very little of that. Um, I, had, I had two instances in my career in which I felt a little threatened uh, and uh, we dealt with that as, as appropriately. G- generally, they get mad at uh, their own defense lawyer and, and the judge uh, for whatever reason. Um, uh, those seem to be the, the targets of, of, of uh, dismay, I guess, by criminal defendants. But uh, it happens. Um, but... Uh, the, the job, I think they realized I was just doing my job. And as long as I did it fairly and, and, uh, and justly, I think that uh, I didn't worry about that too much. That's good. That's good. All right, so you grew up in Oklahoma City. Um, pretty unique childhood because your dad was mayor, and there are not very many people who yeah. that's, their, that's their life. Um, so um, that had to have uh, an impact on you, had to, had to somehow shape. Uh, the person that you've become. Um, so tell us a little bit about that. And, you know, I know that, that living in the limelight, a lot of things are different. But at the end of the day, we all need the same things. So maybe tell us about a time when, when somebody demonstrated to you that, that you were valuable, that had an impact on you. Because I know when you're in the limelight, you get a lot of attention, but that's not necessarily feeling valued. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And, and yeah, sure, I was in the, I think, the sixth grade or fifth grade when my dad became the mayor. He'd been district attorney, and, and he ran for the United States Senate when I was seven and eight years old. So um, great experiences. I got to go all over the state with him. He included me and uh, my brother in, in, in everything that he did and, uh, and loved it. Um, they, even though my brother, as I said earlier, couldn't hear, he was very vocal. And my dad joked that he didn't know that I could talk until my brother went to college. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I was a quiet, kind of a quiet kid. And I, I, I whatever reason, had the, the I, I just listened and, and, and paid a lot of attention to things. But um, it, it was a different childhood. And uh, my, my folks split when I was very, very small. So I had the two two houses and, and I had wonderful step-parents. I was very fortunate. Um and, you know, uh, a great education and, and, and experiences like that. My mother was a teacher for 55 years, so uh, I would, um, you know, we'd go with my dad and everyone would recognize him and we'd go places with my mom and she'd have students come up to her. So she, she led and had a, uh, as important or maybe a more important job Absolutely. Uh, in many ways than, than, than my dad. Um, so very proud of both of the, the heritages. Um, you know, I, I was, I, I love youth sports. I've coached youth sports for many years. I played everything I could play as a kid. And that is not for everybody, but for me, it was really important. And I think it is, it can be for lots of kids if done the right way. I think maybe we overdo it sometimes now in this society, but that's a probably discussion for another day. But in the fifth or sixth grade, I had a great coach um, and a basketball coach and, and uh, a value. We, we had a kind of dissension among the team and those sorts of things that happen. And and he took me aside and said, you know, asked me to address it. And, um, and I said, why me? And he, he said something like, well, you're the leader of this team. And I, I kind of looked at him. He said, they all watch what you do. And then, you know, and, and I need your help. And that, that meant the world to me, that he, oh, wow. he, would, he would ask me to be involved with that. And uh, it, it gave me some confidence in my own ability and my, you know, uh, position. And, uh, you know, he... he Still, I think about that. Uh, you know, I wasn't a great athlete. I wasn't a great basketball player, but you know, that was something that I could contribute to the team, and, and something I've been trying to contribute and continue to try to, to 
contribute to whatever team I'm on. Oh, wow. That's a great story. You know, how cool is it that that he, as, as a leader, understood how important it is to include the people you lead and what's going on? And I, I've run into so many leaders who, when, when something's important, it's natural to kind of think, well, we're the ones who need to give the message or we're the ones that need to be in front. But so often there's actually somebody else on our team that maybe could deliver that message better than even we can. And not only is that a better form of communication, but like you just so eloquently said, how, how does that make that person feel? How, how much does that impact that person that you would take them aside and say, hey, I've got this important situation and I think you're the person to take this message or to do this thing and give them that responsibility and give them that kudos. That's right. And I had another, sort of the, as I developed the, the, the idea that um, I, I've employed really at the U.S. Attorney's Office and, and, and beyond, you know, get, get really, really good people around you and then get out of their way. Mm-hmm. Let them do their job. Be a resource for them. Direct, you know, where the ship might be going. But um, I think micromanagement in that sense can be destructive, can be counterproductive, right. especially when you have, you have um, uh, you know, talented, capable people. Um, I had a teacher, and, and I was involved in student council in high school, and, and uh, our, our sponsor, I, I wanted to sort of do it all, and she said, you've got good people. You don't need to do everything. You know, let, you know, delegate some of that. And it was great advice to let that go, um, you know, make sure it gets done the right way, but let them do their, let them do their thing. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Okay, so you've worked all over the place. Um, you've, you've got a wide range of experience. You've been in a lot of different organizations and, and seen a lot of different efforts uh, to keep people free from harm in a lot of different ways. Um, give us some thoughts. Give us some of your thoughts on what leaders can do uh, to do better at that. Because I'm sure you've seen areas where, where things could be improved. And, and again, you know, thinking through a safe environment is not just keeping people from getting shot or getting their fingers smashed. In a, you know, we, we work in a manufacturing environment here at Kimray, and we're obviously concerned about people not getting injured physically, but also mentally and emotionally making sure that they're safe. So tell us, tell us some of your experiences there. Yeah, I, I'm a firm believer that the, an organization, no matter how big or how small, it will take on the, the personality of, of its leaders. And... Um, whatever the leaders, however they behave and however they act, that's that's going to trickle down. That's going to be the example that, that many others follow. And whatever uh, the leaders or the leader says and, and emphasizes and, and thinks is important, that's what everyone um, is going to um, think is important. So um, I, I, I've been become in the last few years really interested in business ethics, and I um, it, it's dovetails with some of the white collar criminal cases that I prosecuted as as an assistant and then as, as U.S. attorney, you know, I saw companies where the leaders was were just doing crazy things, and, and that went all the way down. You know, everyone thought, well, this is the way it's it's okay to, to, to do this, to, to rob the till, almost literally. Um, and, you know, that, that, cult, that was the culture that was set by that leader. So whatever that, you know, the leadership, again, um, uh, dictates and, and, and the way they act will we'll filter, we'll filter down. So, um, you know, the 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 leader also has to maintain the credit their credibility. Um, the you know I learned this as a young lawyer and I think it, it's applicable um, more broadly. But uh, you have a, a reservoir of credibility and you know it takes one little hole in that for it to drain out and it's really really hard to to fill it back up again. 
Um, I, I had the opportunity as a young lawyer to work with a legendary trial lawyer here named Burke Bailey, and uh, he uh, he had me on a, on, a, on a case. It was really an honor to, to work directly with him, and, and he asked me to go write a brief, and I we. I did some research, went back and talked to him, talked about the cases, went and wrote the brief, came back, and I gave him the brief, and he, he called me in. He said, well, where's, where are those two cases that you told me weren't, um, you know, positive for us? I said, well, I, I didn't include them. They're not positive for us. He said, no, you got to put them in. The judge is going to find them, and you can't hide it from them. You distinguish it the best you can, but your credibility will be lost if you don't include those, those cases that are, are pertinent and on point. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll win or we'll lose, but we're not going to hide the ball. And, you know, that's a lesson that I learned and, and um, you know, have, have carried on. You know, our credibility as leaders, you know, we've got to maintain it, and it doesn't take much for it to erode pretty quickly. Oh, that's outstanding. You know, we talk a lot around here about um, our culture, and the thing I tell people as often as I can is that the culture of an organization – is the organic result of the belief system of the organization. And the belief system of an organization is predominantly influenced by the beliefs of the leaders. And you said it much more succinctly than that. You just said, look, you know, people follow the leaders and whatever they do, that's going to trickle down throughout the organization. And, and that's so true. So the, the takeaway I would have there is that if, if we are not holding people in high regard and high respect, if we're not taking care of the people that are closest to us in our organization and acting in ways that make other people feel safe and feel cared for mentally, emotionally, as well as physically, then we can't expect the rest of the organization to be doing that doing that either. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think there's also a, a, a component of unselfishness that, you know, we, we um, you said it a minute ago. We, we, you don't have to be the first one in line to be the leader. You don't have to necessarily be on the front line. Um, and sometimes it's probably not a great idea for you to be on the front line. Or, you know, and you can't be too worried about who's getting credit for success. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's got to be, I think, a, a, a true feeling of unselfishness for, for that to, to, to be successful. And for people, you know, obviously to lead, you're going to have to have people follow. And, and to people to want to follow, they're going to have to have a reason. And uh, I think those get, those are some of the reasons people decide who, they, who they're going to follow and who they won't. Absolutely. All right, I'm going to ask you to do something that may make you a little uncomfortable. Uh -oh. but Not um, saying, I hope. No. no okay. my, my dad always says that when you share your successes, you build walls. It's when you share your failures that you build bridges. So tell us a story about a time that you lost a case that you should have won and, and why? What what happened that, that caused you to not, not get the outcome that you should have gotten? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I'm assuming that you've lost a yeah. case. Maybe that's maybe that's a bad assumption on my part. Well, wins and losses is, is hard to, you know, uh, I will say I've only had one um, uh, uh, jury come back not in my favor, but that, that that's the one I remember, right? That's right. that's what right. uh, what you what you remember. Um, you know, it really was maybe the wrong case we, we shouldn't have charged in the first place. And I, I think that jury juries especially pick up on that. And that hopefully those are the cases that end up going to trial. Um, sometimes there are cases that go to trial that shouldn't, and, you know, they don't take very long. And, um, you know, you want to do it right. The person deserves their, their day in court, and that's fine if that's what they choose to do. But usually there's a better way to, to resolve that type of case. In my experience, the ones that didn't go are in our favor – were the ones we probably shouldn't have charged, um, or maybe should have charged a little differently, or, or thought it through a little, a little 
um, more. It, you know, you get in the middle of things and, and, you know, you get so close to it sometimes that you can't see the forest for the trees. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I never, for example, filed anything as a lawyer without someone, else, another lawyer reading it to make sure it, it wasn't, it made sense, of course, and that, you know, grammatically and, and, and all that sort of thing. But also, was, was the spirit right? You know, um, sometimes you get too close to things. I think that with email, like, you know, I, I think email is, I don't want to say the scourge of our existence, but it's, <laughs> it's as, a, as a prosecutor, it was great because it was an you know, evidence trail that you could, you know, follow. Or as a litigator, often I was either cringing or salivating over the emails that I was reading in, in a litigation. But um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something, Sandy. Every once in a while, we, uh, Kim Ray does get uh, sued in a product liability lawsuit. Um, it's, it's never the case that we're actually at fault, but the nature of the way that works, they'll, tum- they'll sue 100 people all at, all at once. And every time we get served and somebody in the organization either sends me a text or an email saying, hey, we got served, this, this, in this case, I immediately send back, I just want to remind you that everything you communicate to me over text or email, unless it's including our lawyer and specifically states that this is communication with our lawyer, is all discoverable. Right. So I don't want any more emails from you yeah. on this, you know? Yeah, so, well, yeah I'm sorry I interrupted no, your story, good. but that, you know, people, you, you, you said that as a, as a prosecutor, there was probably a number of times where you were just like, oh my goodness, these guys have hung themselves because all the, all the trails right here, no right? Yeah. Treasure trail. Yeah. Uh, but I think also in a, in a, in a company, you know, you sometimes you'll write things that you wouldn't say to someone in person. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I had situations at my office back in the U.S. Attorney's Office where people were emailing, and they were three doors down from each other. And right. I'd go, come on, just get up and walk down there, you know. And, and, and also I think sometimes people try to be funny in an email, and, and it doesn't come across necessarily when you read it on a cold, blank page as, as, uh, as comical. So, right. um, But I, I think, it, you know, technology has been great. Um, but there is sometimes a uh, lack of, of um, interpersonal relationships and, and contact that we've we've used electronics to, to as a crutch that um, you know we could use a little more face to face. I cannot agree with you more. Cannot agree with you more. All right, Sandy. Last last question. Um, ask everybody this: If you had an opportunity um, to speak to a number of emerging leaders. What's one piece of advice that you would give someone that that is that is yeah. getting started in, in leadership? Well, as you're, as a lawyer, I can't just give one. So okay, I'll, you, you can know. do you whatever. Yeah, uh, uh, I'll uh, a couple of things. So um, it's always been my philosophy that my two pet peeves are the answer of because that's the way we've always done it, or that's not my job. That's not in my job description because. We're all, if we're really doing this right, we're all pulling on the same rope. We're all, you know, and I've said at the U.S. Attorney's Office, for example, if I needed to make coffee or copies to get the job done, that's what I was going to do. And that, you know, and the answer of, well, that's the way we've always done it, maybe that's, that's still a good way to do it, but that's not a really good answer. There's got to be a reason we've done it that way, and let's, let's dig a little deeper. So, um, you know, I, I think avoid those uh, if you can. And then also, you know, most of, of success in life is showing up on time, prepared with a good attitude. Uh, and if you do those things, um, mostly you're going to be fine. You're going to be successful. Uh, you're, 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 
you're in a leadership position or you're being groomed for a leadership position for a reason. Um, so, you know, if you can show up on time, prepared, with a good attitude, um, you're probably going to be okay. That's awesome. You know, I had another guest on the other day that from a very, very different background, and he said, uh, be dependable and be prepared, which is kind of the same thing, which is amazing that that's it's kind of universal. Yeah. People that are successful have a lot of similar traits, and it makes sense to pay attention to those. Well, Sandy, we really appreciate you uh, coming and joining us today. It's been fun talking to you and listening to you tell stories. You've had a, a very interesting career, and I'm sure you've got a lot uh, still left in front of you. So thank you for taking time today and being with us. Well, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank awesome. you for having me. This has been Word from the Herd. I really appreciate you spending some of your time with us, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Thank you for joining us today on Word from the Herd, a production of the Kimmel Foundation. For more information about the Kimmel Foundation, visit us at thekimmelfoundation.com or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at thekimmelfdn. Please share this podcast and join us again next week for another Word from the Herd. Word from the Herd.